0: Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry reform and advocacy. I'm your host, Venkivia Garner. Thank you for joining us today. So, on today's episode, we're going back into talking about children with incarcerated parents and talking more, not necessarily about the children themselves, because we've had like a series of episodes on them, but just talking about. Um, family reunification, and just the process of parents when they are released and how that impacts children's well-being, and a bunch of other different layers within this topic. So with me today is Dr. Luke Mitner. Dr. Mitner is a postdoctoral research fellow associate at the University of Minnesota's Department of Pediatrics. His research investigates the collateral consequences of parental incarceration and community reentry for children and families. And in addition to his academic work, he has social work practice experience supporting men reintegrating into the community after jail and prison and designing and implementing reentry programming. Um, so throughout his work, Dr. Midner advocates for the expansion of evidence-based rehabilitative programming and community-based alternatives to incarceration that meets individual's needs while simultaneously emphasizing and amplifying aspects of individual family and community resilience. So, plethora of of experience to talk about the topic that we uh, will be talking about today. So, Dr. Mitner, I just want to say thank you for coming on More Life to share your, you know, not only just your expertise, but your experiences.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: <laughs> well. As always, um, we're gonna jump into the conversation a little later. Um, but I do want to spend the first part of the podcast just asking you and just talking you to you about what kind of inspired you to go into the field that you are in, um, and to go get a PhD and what you have a PhD and kind of the work that you do.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I first got involved with research as an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My bachelor's degree is in human development and family studies and there's a professor in that department Dr. Julie Pellman who does incredible work in this area related to kids whose parents are incarcerated and when I was an undergraduate student she had a number of projects going on um, related to kids whose parents were incarcerated looking for undergraduate research assistance Um, And I got to do some really incredible work like um, she had a project going on with uh, jailed parents and was looking for um, assistance to go into kids' homes and do developmental assessments with kids and interview caregivers and and do some work in that area. She was also doing work related to um, evaluation of Sesame Street's programming for um, their little children, big challenges, incarceration materials. So we got to do work related to that, that project as well. What those two studies showed me was just really the value and and the purpose in in research and sort of trying to unpack some of these larger social issues um, and try to develop some data-driven solutions to to better support folks who are navigating the criminal legal system, um, those who are families and children and and parents, all all those folks. So then I was trying to decide the best way for me to get involved moving forward after, after I graduated undergrad. Was uh, considering a, a number of different disciplines or, or approaches to studying the criminal legal system and ultimately settled, settled in on social work because I like the way that they incorporate social justice perspectives into their sort of study and, and pursuit and practice uh, related to these larger social issues. Um, and decided to pursue a joint uh, master's and PhD in, in social work, which is where I initially started to then get more interested in reentry and the sort of reentry space. Um, have a number of uh, sort of practice experiences related to providing case management to men who were recently released from jail and prison, and like you had said, to doing some program-related work for community-based programs for previously incarcerated fathers. Um, I eventually did my dissertation then, sort of bridging those two topics, looking at uh, family reunification, so how kids are coping um, once parents are, are released from uh, jail and prison. Um, and since then, I've, I've continued to, to study this area in my postdoc. Right now I'm doing more sort of like public health and health equity focus on um, kids whose parents are incarcerated. Really doing a lot of work related to regional disparities in parental incarceration rates and what that means for rural kids who are navigating experiences of parental incarceration and, and community reentry in, in rural communities.
0: Okay, so kind of started in undergrad and then kind of worked your way through, you know, social work, uh, master's and PhD. Um, I think that's great, though. Um, I will say my undergrad didn't have a lot of experience as to where I could work uh, with the criminal justice population, let alone do research. So I think that that's a really good thing. Um, and then you went to your social work, the joint program and kind of and you did your dissertation there. And um, that's where you started doing more re reentry stuff. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay, and I noticed when you were talking about, like, why you went into social work, you were talking about this lens of how they, um, how that discipline really uh, emphasizes, like, social justice, Um, and that's one of the things that I saw in some of your work is, you know, that kind of implementing that framework. Could you talk to us a little bit about how that framework has influenced some of your research?
1: Yeah, of course. So the field of social work has with with it a code of ethics, really a a sort of guiding principles that they encourage all social workers to carry with them in their practice, in their teaching, and in their research. And there's a number of different principles which really resonate with me, things like social justice, one one key um, sort of value that I think I try to incorporate in, in all of my practice and my teaching and my research is just the value of self-determination. And I think that can come up a lot in this sort of re-entry space as we're trying to figure out how to better support folks on their pathways home from, from jail or prison. And one of the guiding principles is just allowing folks to be in control of what their most pressing needs are, what they're most concerned about, and trying to help them develop what sort of their intervention plan can look like. And so uh, an example of of the ways in which I have brought self-determination into some of my, my research is Um, During my PhD, I was working with a professor at the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Pajarita Charles, um, in developing and implementing and now eventually evaluating a community-based intervention for previously incarcerated dads. And as we were going through the sort of development process for that project, we held um, a number of focus groups, both with previously incarcerated um, fathers as well as with some of their um, family members, so kids' uh, mothers or, or fathers, um, relatives, maybe like grandma or, or sister or things like that, um, trying to trying to interview folks to see what they thought would be um, most beneficial for them for this community-based program, both in terms of content area and then also thinking about sort of accessibility or constraints, things related to transportation maybe, or or childcare, And so really allowing individuals with lived experience to be kind of in control or in the driver's seat of what this intervention um, program looks like. And then once we got more down to to the nitty and gritty of the the program itself, we worked with um, a community advisory board of previously incarcerated individuals and service providers to go over the curriculum with us and help us Make sure it was um, culturally relevant to the diverse group of folks that we were hoping to serve, and also just hitting the content areas that these um, that previously incarcerated folks identified as being most needed on um, um, once they've been released in, in regards to attending to some family-related um, issues and, and really navigating family reunification. So uh, across that whole um, that whole study, that whole program, we really tried to embody different social work values, things like social justice, things like self-determination, to really. Uh, um, uh, hand agency back to back to individuals and communities to be in control of, of what this process looks like.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important piece of um, when you already feel like you don't have control of things, um, it can be really difficult to navigate a process like this. Um, so I'm kind of handing them back some level of control. Um I could see definitely as beneficial um, for these individuals and actually understanding what are their needs. Exactly. Cause a lot of times I think sometimes we may assume um, what the needs are and we really don't know. Cause we have to ask the individuals. Um, so I guess you talked about your dissertation a little bit that leads us more into, I guess, our conversation for today. And um, talking about, I know we're, we're not going to go too much into detail about children and um, you know, the consequences of parental incarceration, because we've had episodes on those before, but we still will be in that area. So I guess I want to give you the floor and say, where do you feel like you would like to start to bring us into this conversation?
1: Yeah, so I think one important piece to start here, and something I try to emphasize in my, my research is just the need to really view incarceration beyond an isolated event for kids. Mm -hmm. Parental incarceration doesn't happen in a vacuum. In fact, it's oftentimes a series of complex and stressful and and traumatizing and even confusing events that lead up to a parent's incarceration. And then of course, there there is the incarceration itself and then the eventual release. So I I think in, in, in research, there could be this sort of, False narrative related to this dichotomy of before and after um, release, or even before, or after, uh, during incarceration. There's a lot of these sort of like temporal elements. But I, I think an important takeaway is to understand that this really is a, a process for kids that that unfolds over time. So one thing that it starts with is, is the arrest of a parent, um, and some children uh, uh, witness or are exposed to the arrest of their parent, which can um, lead to some pretty detrimental consequences for kids. And, and that is one line of, of my research that I'd be happy to talk about if, if of interest. And then, of course, and as you've said, you've had episodes on this, but there's uh, a number of deleterious collateral consequences for kids once parents are are incarcerated. But then, of course, a number of barriers awaiting them and facing them in the community, which is, I think, what we are hoping to, to talk about today. But in our conversations on community reentry, it's important to keep it in the back of your mind all of those things that happened before things like potentially witnessing arrest, things like stress and trauma associated with the separation, or maybe some challenges or, or re traumatization that kids experience coming to visit parents in, in jail or prison. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on before. Um, The kids navigate family reunification after parents are released.
0: Yeah, so if we could uh, just spend some time there, because I don't think that's an area particularly that I have discussed on in, like, any of my children's segments of just what, when you're talking about how many are, I guess, how many children are we seeing that are potentially witnessing these arrests? Or um, can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so... Witnessing arrest is complicated for kids, right? Because Largely because there's no sort of administrative data that's routinely captured to allow us to really super accurately measure that. So we know that every year there's about 10 million arrests that are conducted in the United States. There's some estimates that suggest that an arrest is made about every three seconds. So it's a a pretty common occurrence in the United States for individuals to become arrested. Now, of course, not everyone arrested is a parent. We know from estimates of those who are currently incarcerated in state prisons that about half of folks have dependent children back home. Rates are that are a little bit higher for incarcerated women. But we also see some variation in that statistic too. So there's some uh, data that came out from uh, Minnesota state prisons that found that upwards of about two thirds of incarcerated men were fathers. And over 3 quarters of incarcerated women were mothers. And um, rates for jailed women even jumped to about 80% of those in jail being mothers. So this estimate that about 50% of incarcerated folks are parents is likely an underestimate. There's likely more. But if you sort of extrapolate that statistic to the arrest statistic, if we know that about half of those incarcerated are parents, we can kind of assume that about half of all those who are arrested are also parents. Um, now, of course, not every arrest happens with a, a child nearby or, or witnessing. Um, some of the work that I've done in this area has tried to measure the, the proportion of children who witness their parents' arrests. And the, the really, the, the statistics vary across samples. So there's two different studies that I've worked on with smaller samples of kids whose parents are incarcerated in jails. And we found in one study about 27% witnessed the arrest, and another study found about 43%. So I don't know, about a quarter to just under half of kids um, were present for their arrest. And uh, one other study that I did used um, a sample of imprisoned parents, so parents who are in prison, and found that about 17% of kids witnessed um, their arrest. Um, And in that that prison study, we found that... um, of those who witnessed the arrest, seventy-one percent of those kids um, lived with the the parents before their current incarceration. So we know that witnessing um, arrest is more common for kids who co-reside with with parents. Um, but across those two different jail studies, we were able to assess how distressing that arrest was for for kids. So we had parents rate sort of children's distress levels on a scale of one to five, and we found that across both studies, parents rated. Um, distress at uh, above a a four five being the of course most distressing one the least distressing and kids were about a four so um it's turned out to be a, a pretty distressing and traumatic event for kids and then what those studies go on to do is is link with this sort of exposure to parental arrest um and subsequent really distress what that means for children's health and development and potentially unsurprisingly it it leads to pretty um negative consequences for for kids health and development both their physiological stress levels their physical health and their sort of language um um, development in that capacity
0: yeah okay that is um interesting because i've never um done any research in this area at all so like this is completely new information for me as well and you were talking about some of the consequences of kind of witnessing those arrests um are there any other consequences that we see besides that are outside health or outside of like um stress levels or anything like that
1: yeah, it's still an emerging area of research. So a lot of the research to date has documented more so like stress, behaviors, and health and development, um, those sort of implications for kids. And again, pretty much across the board, we see that those who who witness um, the arrest have um, more, more negative reactions. I think this area of research is really ripe for um. Locally tailored evaluation studies that look at what different protective factors could be for kids who witness their arrest. So, in 2014, the International Association of Chiefs of Police put together a list of best practices for law enforcement agencies to employ locally. That sort of tries to to mitigate some of these risks related to stress for for children who are exposed. So, what some of those um, recommendations are are. Um, You know, conducting maybe some pre-arrest planning, if at all possible, and ensuring that maybe the the child isn't around at the time of the arrest or the arrest happens out of sight of the child. Maybe that means walking the parents um, to be arrested around the corner of a building or behind a different parked car, things like that, depending on the situation. It also calls for parents to be included in arrangements for for children's alternative caregivers. Oftentimes, parents are are arrested without giving much say or consideration into where um, or whose care the children go into. So that's included in there. There are also um, other recommendations like allowing the parents to to talk with the child before they're taken away or even um, allowing the parents to give the child maybe their jacket or their sweatshirt as a sort of safekeeping or or something that the child can keep close to them to remind them of their parents. So I think there's room for um, evaluation of what some of these different strategies or even potentially adoption of all of these model practices what that means for for children's well-being as a way to sort of mitigate this risk and and these known uh, deleterious consequences that we see for for kids' health and development.
0: Yeah, okay. And um, I guess segueing back to what you were talking about kind of like before of just because you were mentioning, you mentioned some stats related to, you know, just children exposure as well as parental arrest. So I think it's probably safe to say that, um, you know, this experience of whether you witness the arrest, but just parental incarceration in general is a traumatic and maybe even adverse childhood experience for these individuals.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. And yeah, we know that that kids whose parents are incarcerated are about five times more likely to experience additional household challenges. That's things like, um, potentially divorce, uh, death within the household, poverty, residential mobility, housing, or, or food insecurity. So we know that kids with incarcerated parents are, are more likely about five times more likely to experience these additional adverse challenges.
0: Okay. And so when, so now we're on this topic of, we're talking about children and, um, you were talking I know like our plan for today is really to talk about how these children are coping with these experiences um yeah. I I know that there's a lot there so I kind of want to just dive into it and I guess that's the question is how are they managing these you know their emotions their thoughts their feelings or just coping in general when a parent is arrested and I guess we can kind of start there and make our way through
1: great that sounds good yeah yeah, you know, it's it's a really complex phenomenon, right? So um, uh, about 95% of individuals who are incarcerated are eventually released. So that means that the vast majority of individuals, vast majority of parents who, who go to jail or prison, then come back home and, and are navigating a number of these barriers within the community. We know in terms of, of children's coping and children's well-being, is that struggles that kids faced during the incarceration don't immediately subside once parents come home. In fact, we see in, in, in some studies um, challenges that children experience continuing, and in fact, even growing for some, some portions of youth. So there's, some study, there's one study that came out from the Fragile Families um, and Child Wellbeing Study that looks at reentry and finds that boys, in particular, are vulnerable to continued behavior problems post-release. And they see that continuing for even upwards of like nine years following parents' release. So this isn't something that happens within the first day week or or month of a parent's release. But some of these continuing consequences can continue for for years to come for for children. and we know that there's also continued consequences for um, uh, other sorts of, of mental health behaviors. We know that even children with formerly incarcerated parents are at heightened risk for anxiety and depression and suicide-related behaviors compared to those peer- their peers who've never experienced parental incarceration. So um, even once parents are released, there still continues to be a significant risk for, for kids whose parents have ever been incarcerated. And
0: so... I know a lot of your research focuses on, um, you know, looking at children outcomes and um, and I know some of your research has has stated that, you know, the focus has primarily been on parents and well, the outcomes for parents. And I guess I wanted to just ask you why, why, why is it important for us to be focusing on children outcomes and be discussing this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to to expand the scope to include children, just understanding that so many kids are impacted by parental incarceration. We know at at any given time, there's about 5 million children who've ever experienced parental incarceration. That equates to about 7% of the U.S. population or or 1 in 14 uh, children in the U.S., And those statistics are likely underestimates, right? They mostly include parents who are in prison and they mostly include kids who um, previously co-resided with this incarcerated parent. So that means kids who maybe weren't living with their incarcerated parents or maybe kids whose parents don't have custody, they're not included in those statistics. So this one in 14 is still likely a, a pretty underestimate. So there's still a large proportion of children who are experiencing this phenomenon. But once, and while there's, there's, there are limited supports for children with incarcerated parents, though there are some that, that do exist, things like mentoring programs, um, positive youth development programs, things like that. There are certain services that do exist for kids with incarcerated parents, but really limited services for kids once parents are are released. And um, there's limited services broadly for, for previously incarcerated individuals, adults, parents, themselves. So... Recognizing that sort of service gap, there's a significant service gap then in, in those sorts of um, resources or, or programs that, that target kids, which is why I think it's just so important to continue to, to study kids in this area. Um, and then also recognizing that reentry isn't linear. In fact, a number of folks eventually turn back through the system. It's upwards of like two-thirds of individuals recidivate within the first three years, about half of those occur um, within the first year. So we know that just because a parent comes home for, from jail or prison doesn't mean that they're they're gonna stay home forever, right? And so that's what one of my studies can um, starts to look at is trying to link what recidivism means for, for children's well-being. And what we find in that study is that parents who are able to stay in the community following their release, that sort of stable reentry is associated with improved behaviors um, uh, for children over time. So the longer that parents remain in the community, the better children's behaviors tend to be. But we know that in instances when parents recidivate, or cycle back through the system. um, It's associated with more negative behavior problems for kids. And we see those um, behavior problems grow in magnitude the more times that parents recidivate or, or turn back through the system. So uh, all that to say is that it, folk, there's a need to focus on children, both in terms of trying to develop and expand and fund um, intervention and prevention, really support programs for kids. And there's also a need to focus on children on children in this reentry space because so many kids are are impacted and continue to be impacted as as uh, folks turn to the system.
0: So what I'm hearing, and I'm actually glad that. Um... You segued into that because my question was going to be when you were talking about recidivism and how is it contributing to children' well being. Um, but kind of what I'm hearing from that, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, is that the more stable someone is able to become during their reentry process, the more likely um, behavioral concerns decrease. Um, but when people recidivate um, or go back to prison or to jail, especially numerous of times, we definitely see that these behaviors are continuing on longer for children. Is that, is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. You're, you're spot on there. And what we do see too in those numbers is that there's actually nuance based upon um, post-incarceration co-residents. So whether the Um, parent comes back and lives with the child in the child's home. And what we see is that we what we see is the greatest effect sizes for non-residential children, meaning that behavior problems decrease the most um, in terms of stable reentry for for kids who don't live with their parent post-release. Now that's not to say that living with the with a child post release um, is associated with the most detrimental outcomes. Outcomes. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, we see that residential children still too do see decreased behavior problems over time when parents are able to remain in the community. We just see the effect size of those behavior problems be a little bit smaller. And there's some interesting conversations in this sort of reentry space um, in the context of family reunification and and co-residents. So. Other studies, both qualitative and quantitative, have found similar trends. And what scholars are starting to piece together is that it seems as though the extent to which kids are more or less directly exposed to their parents in this reentry period, and particularly all of the different challenges that come with the reentry period, maybe helps to sort of predict the ways in which kids can cope. So, so for instance, we know that substance use remains a problem or a concern for individuals um, once they're released. And there's some studies that show that when parents come back and live in the home and have continued substance use problems, that behavior problems for for children increase. And that's likely due to this sort of context of of struggle and disadvantage surrounding the child in, in their home, whereas... Perhaps, maybe, if that individual was released and was um, uh, navigating some continued substance use problems post release, but it happened out of the home of the child, maybe out of the, the lens or, or immediate living environment of the kid, that they would maybe be reacting to or responding to that challenge a little bit differently. So, there's nuance within these findings, some really interesting stuff related to co residents. But what we find uh, across the board is that stable reentries associated with decreased outcomes. Um, and that there's maybe a, a need to better support parents who are coming back home to live with their kids to, to get ahead of some of these risks related to substance use, related to potentially um, untreated mental health issues, related to risk for recidivism, recidivism or employment. So the, the implication there not being that you know parents shouldn't come back and live with their kids, the implication there is that parents should come back home and live with their kids if it's a safe and healthy environment for folks to live in and that there should be support structures in place to help with that sort of reunification and stepping back into the home there.
0: So I have a question and I don't know if you will have the answer to this but it is just a question. Uh, So if we're talking about like stability is what's helping um, decrease behavioral problems um, or we're just we're seeing that there's more decrease there's decreased behavior problems with more stability. Um, Are there any ideas of like, what are the differences between the individuals who are stable and who are recidivating? I keep saying that word so wrong for some reason, but who are returning to prison? Like, are there any differences in like the, I guess, why why is this group of people being able or have more stability than this one?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And um, off the top of my head, I don't know specific statistics related to it. I know that there's some work out there that looks in this sort of recidivism space, trying to find what some of the strongest correlates of recidivism is. Things related to gender. So men are more likely than women to recidivate. Um, Things related to age. So younger individuals are more likely than older individuals to recidivate. There's also nuances related to um, length of sentence. So for instance, in the study that I did looking at children's well-being, we saw that those who are incarcerated for shorter periods of time were more likely to recidivate than those who are incarcerated for longer periods. So there definitely is is nuance behind that. I don't think there's a a specific formula in place for uh, um, whether or not an individual will recidivate or not. And I always try to issue a little bit of caution when looking at recidivism as the primary um sort of indicator of post-release success because it's so tied to system constraints. So if you think of the of recidivism or yeah, if you think of recidivism in the context of like community supervision, we know that folks released on parole are released with. Any number, upwards of maybe 20 rules of release, things that mandate certain programming, but also smaller things like uh, mandated curfews. Maybe you have to be home by 8 p.m. or um, rules related to who um, an individual can sort of associate with or be around. And if an individual breaks one of those rules, maybe they miss curfew by just a few minutes or they're caught hanging out with someone that they're not supposed to, they will be, become rearrested and potentially uh, reincarcerated. So, although that sort of um, infraction of their rules of release resulted in their return to prison, so they recidivated and doesn't necessarily implicate or isn't specifically tied to an increase or uptaking in criminal behavior. So I, I think that there are other proxies for post-release success that we should continue to expand and explore in this sort of family reunification space as well. So that could be things like what does um, post-release employment mean for children's well-being or post-release housing security for parents? How does that um, how is that associated with ch- children's behaviors or, or ch- child outcomes? And even like how does things like positive family reunification relate to, to children's well-being? Some of my qualitative work in, in this space really looks at that piece related to um family relationships and finds that caregivers post-release are oftentimes a, a big support, um uh, or, or yeah, a big support piece between previously incarcerated parents and their children. Sometimes they'll they'll gatekeep in some capacity, meaning that they'll maybe um They'll maybe determine how often, how frequently, when, where, how um, parents can see their kids. But when um, parents come home and have positive relationships with children's caregivers, it seems to help um, aid in this sort of family reunification piece. So there's definitely things related to to positive family reunification that can be put in some of these um, uh, measures of post-release success above and beyond recidivism, too.
0: Yeah, that's what I was definitely thinking too, because yeah, I recidivism is definitely like yes or no, where you, did you go back or did you not? Um, And that's kind of what I was thinking too, or maybe if this, stable the people who demonstrated more stability maybe they had those positive relationships or they had that necessary support to kind of help them you know be more stable and to be there more for their children and so maybe if that was some of the differences but that was just something that was kind of like floating through my mind as we were talking about it um so yeah um I guess and you talked a little bit about how the different challenges of employment can impact um children's well-being, and uh, different things like that. So I, I really appreciated that. Can you talk to us a little bit about how do children adjust when their parents return home from incarceration?
1: Yeah, so the immediate reactions to release vary significantly. And there are a number of things that come into play there. So things like child age determines the ways in which a child responds things like the extent to which children were able to maintain communication and contact with parents over the course of their sentence helps to really determine the ways in which children respond. So in some of the qualitative work, we asked previously incarcerated dads, we also asked children's mothers and some of um, their extended family members, You know, what was this sort of adjustment process like for kids? How did they react when when parents came home? And we really heard a, a mixed bag of stories. So there were some stories where kids would run and jump into parents' arms, you know, so happy and elated that their parent was finally back home. But then there were also stories of confusion and distrust and really uncertainty over what's going on, why their parent is now all of a sudden back home, maybe um, uh, uncertainty over how long they'll be able to remain home. And like I said, a a number of different things play into these um, different responses. So we heard that children's age is um, a big indicator of how, how they sort of respond to these, these different emotions. We found that younger children were potentially more, um, more willing to accept uh, parents back into their lives, um, really had less sort of, um, you know, uh, specific questions. And parents were kind of easy or better able to fall back into their sort of routine with kids, um, with younger kids. Older children, on the other hand, express more distrust, uncertainty, maybe even like frustration um, and and anger and resentment towards their parents in this period. A lot of things came up related to really not not believing that parents are going to stay back home for good um, and really commit themselves to sort of stepping back into this parenting role. Um, So we see that with younger kids. One other thing that we saw in sort of shaping these reactions was something that I alluded to: was the ways in which children were able to maintain contact throughout the incarceration. So, when children were able to maintain contact and had access or opportunity opportunity for child-friendly visits, they seem to to fare better with this sort of adjustment process. Um, The reunification seemed to run smoother. There were less concerns or or confusions, um, as opposed to when kids maybe weren't weren't given opportunity to to communicate with their parents over the course of um, the incarceration One of my other studies that sort of looks at children's adjustments in the post-release period looks at what kids are told about parents' incarceration as a predictor for how children are able to navigate this sort of reunification and adjustment process post-release. And what do we find there is that kids under the age of eight years old, so younger kids, When they're told more developmentally appropriate information as to where their parent is incarcerated, that actually leads to better outcomes. So telling children the the developmentally, you know, simple, honest truth about where their parent is, how long they'll be away and, and what the reunification process might look like can maybe help to prepare kids for, for the reunification process and help them to maybe anticipate some of the challenging emotions that they'll partake in and, and really just opens up more of an honest and ongoing dialogue with caregivers and parents related to what is otherwise a, a potentially stressful and, and traumatizing experience for kids. So all of those different factors can, can play into the ways in which children cope and adjust post-release and, and really is respond to, to parents' reentry.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that of like, is there an explanation of why there are so many differences between younger children and older children and how they may deal with that release? Um, So I guess my question for you right now is if you have an older child who may have a parent that has recently returned home and they have those feelings of distrust or uncertainty, how do you navigate that process like as a parent or... How do you provide the necessary support for that child?
1: It's complicated, right? and And I don't think there necessarily is a a one size fit all fits all answer to that. I think that parents should exercise the the right and autonomy to navigate those sort of complex situations in whatever way they deem is is best for them and their family and, and safest to have those conversations. I think when welcomed and appreciated, including some sort of family therapy in those um, sort of conversations to help parents and children process these complex emotions is a, a really great step. And I also think that there, uh, outside of therapy, there are things in which the previously incarcerated parent can do to really um sort of step back into the parenting role in a meaningful way. So I'm thinking back to one of the participants that we interviewed in our qualitative study, and it was a a mom of a a child whose father was uh, previously incarcerated. And she had teenage sons, um, one or two of which had had their own interactions with the criminal legal system or the juvenile legal system in some way, shape, or form already. And what she was telling us was that she was really looking forward to their dad's eventual or their dad's release. She was excited about this opportunity for him to sort of step up and be a more pro-social role model in these kids' lives, showing them the challenges that he had gone through as he went through the criminal legal system himself and really try to serve as a deterrent um, to to his children for um, entering a, a cycle of incarceration themselves. So outside of sort of general family conversations and family therapies, there are things that parents can do to increase their involvement, increase their um, opportunities as, as role models to to step back into the lives of kids and, and be there um, in whatever way, shape or form that may look like for that for that family system.
0: Okay. And what about just generally, like what do you suppose needs to be done to kind of address um, or better aid in family reunification?
1: Yeah, great question. And the way I approach that is tends to be calling for both like downstream and upstream approaches. Um, I don't think it's necessarily an either or, I think it's a both and. So there needs to be work done more at that micro level that really intervenes and supports families on this process home, as well as at the macro sort of policy level. So I'll start more at that, that micro level, that individual level. I think first off, uh, implications are for criminal legal systems or jails or prisons themselves to mandate and standardize re-entry programming. We know that re-entry programming and re-entry planning looks very different from institution to institution, even within entire state systems. So one state prison might be doing release planning completely differently from another sort of state prison within the same system. So mandating and expanding that really to start re-entry planning the day, day one, the first day an individual enters jail or prison, will really help to identify what the most pressing needs are to be addressed throughout this person's sentence and begin to sort of um, uh, um, link them with programming or other support services to help mitigate some of these uh, risks, which uh, enter them in the criminal, criminal legal system to begin with. Building off of that, there's a need within that reentry programming to include attention to family-related needs. So that can be a thing of expanding family-based programming for incarcerated individuals themselves. Maybe that's incorporating some sort of a parenting program within the institutions, or expanding opportunity for child-friendly or family-focused visits to allow children and parents to children and families to come into the institutions and maintain this sort of contact with with their um, um, incarcerated parent. And then once individuals are released, I think it's very important for there to be, as much as it's possible, a continuum of care for in- individuals from institution to the community. So that means continuing to link individuals with the resources that they were um, obtaining while they were incarcerated, now back in the community. This can include expanding family-related programming post-release, so maybe something like that intervention program that I talked about earlier on in the podcast that provides sort of family-focused services for previously incarcerated parents, but has that sort of child and family focus, really expanding those programmings and and linking um, individuals to those services if they um, have an interest or or a need for those. So those are all different things that can happen on the sort of micro level to help intervene on. on risks related to um, family reunification. I think, of course, also there are different programmings um, uh, that could help to better support the child themselves. Things like access to um, school counselors, um, school-based therapy programs, there seems to be some positive results of um, mentoring programs for kids whose parents are incarcerated. There's some cool models that are coming out for um, like summer camps for kids whose parents are incarcerated. So there are other programming there too that can um, better serve children whose parents are incarcerated. And I think just ensuring that that sort of access or opportunity to those programs continue upon post, post-release post too. And so not, not necessarily neglecting kids whose parents were formerly incarcerated. So those are some things at the more micro level that I think can help to intervene on on risks associated with family reunification. At the macro level, I feel like there's a need for some um, policy reform and advocacy around just sort of reducing the number of children and families put in this sort of precarious and compromising position while still achieving um, community and family and, and child safety. So there's some really cool work being done in a number of different states, uh, but particularly the state of Washington is doing some interesting sentencing reform related to community based alternatives for parents. So there's um, opportunities for parents to um, carry out uh, treatment services within the community so that they can still maintain in touch and in connection with their their child, as opposed to serving their sentence in in jail or prison. So both overall reducing the number of individuals who interface with the criminal legal system and then also turning towards community-based alternative forms of incarceration for everyone, but specifically in the context of parental incarceration, to really sort of uh, mitigate this risk associated with the separation um, and and reduce some of these continued um, poor or or negative outcomes that we see for children post-release even.
0: So, yeah, I heard some, we talked about some individual things that can be done also at a policy level. I guess when we're thinking about people who are just trying to advocate um, and, want to do their own individual work, Uh, what what can they do? How can they be supportive of the parents or the child?
1: Yeah, I think there's a number of different ways to get involved. So you can get involved locally with different community organizations that are doing work in this area. Oftentimes there will be different organizations that will do drives around the holiday times for either clothing or food or even gifts. Um, So you can keep an eye out for organizations like that. You can also get involved within your state advocating for um, certain policy changes that you think are really important to you. So one that I tend to to call out is that, you know, calls from jail and prison can be really expensive, upwards of like... $10, even upwards of $20 for a 15-minute phone call in some states. And that can be a huge barrier to family relationship maintenance and even rebuilding over the course of a parent's incarceration, which, as I've talked about, has implications for how kids are able to adjust post-release. So there's work that you can be doing in your state to reduce some of those barriers to visits um, and really trying to eliminate the cost of phone calls and video visits altogether as a way to intervene on and advocate for um, uh, kid, or families who are experiencing the incarceration of a parent, and then beyond that, I also think there's just a, a need to bring these sort of conversations into spaces with your friends and your families and your and your neighbors and your coworkers and your loved ones. There's a number of interesting books and podcasts like this one and documentaries out right now that are bringing these conversations into really accessible spaces. And now it's up to us to consume that sort of media and engage in these conversations on a more deliberate level and really overall trying to bring more individuals um, uh, along the, along for the, the journey of um, really trying to better better shape these experiences for kids and families navigating the system.
0: Yeah, I think those are all some really great points. I know that I found some um, pretty interesting films that don't necessarily just highlight family reunification, but just the experiences of incarceration just in general. Um, And of course, it highlights some things, you know, children um, and various other things in there. So I think the very things that you talked about from all levels, individual um, advocacy and just policy are all just very important. And Can help us move towards um, the ideal of where we're trying to go of, you know, getting these people back into their communities and helping them be successful um, and to uh, transform themselves into what it is that they have that they want to be and how they want to live their lives. Um, So I think that is really great as well. Well, before we end our conversation, um, before we get off of here, anything I want to ask, is there anything else that you would like to add to our conversation? Um, I guess so more of the question is if there's anything you want to leave the audience with, what would it be?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I, I think my last piece of advice or a key takeaway here that I'd want to make is, as you start engaging with some of these larger social issues that require so much attention and advocacy and activism around, I just encourage you not to lose sight of the humanity behind the topic. So many of these kids and families are kids and families just like you and yours and kids and families in your neighborhood. Um, Children with Currently and previously incarcerated parents are kids who love to play games and laugh and run and have love for them themselves and their parents and their families in a way that so many of us also do. So I just encourage folks to, to not lose sight of that and to really cherish the, the strength and the resilience within these children and families who are navigating really complex, stressful, and traumatizing experiences.
0: And I think that is a, a great point of you just don't forget the humanity in these individuals. And um exactly. they're just like us, um, even if they, even if our experiences are different. So I really do thank you for sharing that with us. And before we officially end here, I do want to say if anyone is interested in learning more information about Dr. Luke and um his work, I will definitely make sure that I post his social media, his Twitter account in the bio below as well as his professional website. And um, as always, I want to thank you for coming on and just sharing your expertise and just talking about, you know, your relevant experiences and all the work that you have done. Like, um, I'm sure our audience will benefit from this and hopefully they get something out of this because I think it was a great conversation.
1: Great. Thank you so much for having me. This work is so important. So thank Mm -hmm. you. Thank you for engaging.
0: Yes. And as always, um, if you are interested in learning more about More Life, the reentry podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at More Life, the reentry podcast. And don't forget to push the subscribe button at the top. Thank you.